Now I'm here. Now I'm here. Now I'm here. And now you're here, dear listener. We can begin. So welcome to episode 11 of the Mainframe Performance Topics podcast. We are Marna Wally from ZOS Development at IBM in Poughkeepsie. And Martin Packer from somewhere else. <laughs> you have something funny to say every time, Martin. I'm wondering what you're going to say every episode. I'm trying. Oh, how trying. <laughs> and where have you been lately? Well, I've been on a great trip. I went to Share in San Jose uh, the week of March 6th, and I had a great time there. It was a great conference. Lots of people saw some old faces, saw some new faces, talked about new topics. So it was it was a great conference. Saw some new old faces, probably, and some old new faces. And some old new faces as well. That's right. Some old old faces and some new new faces. <laughs> so I'm just putting off the evil moment where I have to say I've been absolutely nowhere apart from Hursley since we last recorded. Yeah, well, that'll change. We'll, we'll see each other in person at some conference sometime, I'm sure. Sure. So, Martin, we've got some feedback. Uh, the first one that I heard of was from a lovely Australian friend of ours who gave us a compliment on the podcast, which was very nice. So thank you to him. And the little bird told me we have listeners in Sweden. So hello, Sweden. Yes, hello, Sweden. I've always wanted to be able to say that. <laughs> I wish I could say it in Swedish, but I can't. So... All right, so we have uh, one item of follow-up, Martin. Why don't you talk about the follow-up item since it's yours? Right, so the one piece of follow-up is that the workflow folks, Splendid folks, all of them, got bought by Apple, and we talked about workflow, haven't we? Yeah, we did. We mentioned that in our last episode, which was episode number 10. And actually, uh, looking into this, it's, a, it's quite good because it's one of these acquisitions where they've acquired the app and made it free, and they've acquired the people. So the first says, when we said to you go and spend money on this, you probably don't have to now. And you can curse us for that if you like. Um, but the other thing is, because they've got the people, hopefully this will continue to get developed and evolved. So so that's a nice piece of follow-up to an uh, item we talked about last time. Well, if they're giving it away for free and they've taken the people, how are they paying the people? <laughs> are, there, are there price options on it? <laughs> they're obviously doing it for nefarious purposes. Okay. All right. We'll wait and see about that one. Maybe another follow-up. So, Martin, one more time, explain the name of this episode, X-I-Ting. Well, it you really should pronounce it a bit faster than that. It should be exciting. But basically, it's all about Roman numerals. So I'll leave it to the reader to work out why we're calling it exciting. And we only have one shot at this bad pun. Yeah, you did. You had one shot. We took it. And now we're moving on. Unless the next one's going to be X-I-I-Ting, right? I'm not sure I can pronounce that one. But actually, you had an alternate working title for this. Yeah, I did. I had suggested, and as usual, my titles are always lame, but I had suggested some assembly require because the um, topics topic talked a little bit about assembly. So I had just an alternate title for a little while. Actually, that would be a fairly misdirecting title for our audience, I think. Yeah, I think so too. But when you get to topics topic, you can let us know. And now it's time for our mainframe topic. Yes, for this episode, I've selected ZOSMF Workflow Editor for our mainframe topic. Workflows? Didn't we just do that? Yeah, we did, but this is ZOSMF Workflows on ZOS, and not the iOS workflows like last episode, which I didn't know very much about. So I've been playing with the new function in ZOSMF on ZOS 2.2 and on 2.1, so it's really for practically everybody, called the Workflow Editor. 
and I've learned a whole lot that I really wanted to share with folks. And so I thought that would make a great mainframe topic for this episode. Now, you'll pardon the really bad pun. Didn't you just cover this at the SHARE conference? <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, I worked on a lab for quite a while. And actually, at the conference, when we were going to do it, we had a full room, uh, but the lab hit some snags. Okay. Thankfully, many people got through the lab, uh, but we did have some problems that we're actually taking back and we're going to work on. You know, this is supposed to be a happy podcast series, so we don't talk about problems. Oh, I know, but that's for another time, so I, I'm going to be more upbeat on this one. <laughs> so anyway, tell us all about it. So what you can do with the ZOSMF Workflow Editor is you can create your own workflow using a GUI, using a dialog, or, and this is great because you can modify an existing workflow that you have. When you go into the Workflow Editor, what you're going to be presented with are a bunch of folders, okay? Metadata folder, step folder, variable folders, all these kind of definitions that you're going to need for your workflow. Um, and one of the interesting things is you cannot forget you've got to associate your variables with steps. Otherwise, you just have steps and you just have variables, but you don't really have any relation between the two. So one of the things I'm picking up is that you will never be able to create an invalid ZOSMF workflow. Yeah, and that is really one of the wonderful things about uh, this workflow editor is you will never, ever have a workflow uh, that's invalid so that when you go to create it, it will never fail on the creation. Now, it may not be what you want, and that, that's fine. That means it's your fault because you put something in the workflow you didn't want, but you will never have an invalid uh, validation of it. That's the story of my life, stuff that will compile but doesn't do what I want. <laughs> yes, me as well. So we were thinking, or at least I was thinking, that for your very first workflow, you'll probably want to have maybe some JCL invoke because we, that's what we do a lot. We invoke JCL, and so maybe you want to wrap that JCL around a workflow. So what you have to understand is that JCL in workflow terms is something called a template. And the things that you put in that JCL, you probably want to have variables so that you can change the contents of that template. And that variables are what you want to gather from the user based on what he wants to do. So what you can do at this point in the workflow is you can guide the user through these variables and you can ask them to give variables that you can run in the JCL template. Now what's really wonderful about this is the workflow editor can actually validate those variables upon entry. So let's say I'm looking for a data set name, right? Well, the workflow editor will validate that you're really giving it a valid data set name, right? 44 characters, uh, you know, with the right qualifiers and everything like that. Now, something in the workflow to understand is that the workflow variables use the open source Apache Velocity engine. And this is a very powerful engine where you can do variable substitution and conditional directives, but you have to use it properly. So I'll give you some hints and tips on that when we provide it in the uh, sample I'll give you. So actually, I'm aware of the Velocity engine, funnily enough. So I, and I took a quick look at the website. And it's been around a long time, and it's a well-trusted and well-loved engine with lots of flexibility. So it's, it's a good one for us to be building this on. Yeah, it is. What, are, what pitfalls are there to avoid that you can share with us at this point? Oh, well, there's a lot. And so I uh, believe you me, if there's something to go wrong, I probably have stepped in it. So. Uh, first thing is that you probably want to remove the dummy first step that is put into the workflow. Because you have to have a step in a workflow, we have to give you a dummy step. So you probably want to take that out so that it does what you want. 
The next thing, like I mentioned before, is you've got to associate your variables with steps. Otherwise, you just have steps and you just have variables, but you really don't have anything that ties them together. So you really need to make sure that you have those things tied together. The next thing is you have to remember to handle that variable substitution correctly. And there's a little checkbox underneath the template, which is really kind of the JCL, which you might want to think of as for your first workflow. If you miss that little checkbox, lo and behold, you will have JCL that will not run. It's a small little checkbox, but it will drive you crazy if you forget to do it. And believe you me, I have forgotten to check it many times. Another thing, which is a, a little feature, I guess, which I've, I've given my input to the team about, is that you have to save as into an empty directory. Or when you do a save, it does overlays of what you have there before. Now, I'm not really a fan of having to save as into an empty directory. It was kind of an assumption that was made that I'm not really a fan of, so given my feedback on that. But this is another thing. If you try to save as and the directory is not empty, you will be told it's not empty. On the other hand, I've written many good pieces of code with bad code in the past, so maybe I can appreciate that one. So there's lots to remember and watch out for. But this is still a step above editing the XML by hand, right? Oh my gosh, yes. So, I mean, gone are the days when I have to shuffle between Notepad++, upload it to the system, getting schema validation errors, take it back down to Notepad++, change it, try it up again. I mean, that constant moving, I'm saving a whole lot of time by just using the workflow editor and making sure that it's valid. But... What I'm really surprised about, and this is in the first release of the workflow editor, I was very surprised because this really is an advanced function, is I can spend some time creating a step, put it in a library and do an export of it. Then anybody else can do an import of that step into their workflow, which makes it really handy. If I do something very common, other people can use it in their workflow, which is really a great surprise, and it's only in release one. Reuse, woohoo. <laughs> yeah, release right out of the box, yeah. That's brilliant. So, what if I get enthused, as I just might, and want to try it out? All right, so what I'm going to do is, in the show notes, I'm going to put a link to the Share Lab that I created recently. And I put into the Share Lab the method of how you can use it on your own system, not just on the Share system. And in the appendix is all the sample JCL or templates that I've used. So we'll put that link in the show notes and you could actually try it out on your own ZUSMF system as long as you have the right PTFs on installed, which I will also put in the show notes. And now we in Greenford have got the giddy heights of ZOS 2.1. Maybe I shall badger my sysprogs to put on the PTFs and then I'll go play with it. Do it. And now for our performance topic, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Anna Chagall, and today's topic is Z hyperlinks, or we'll probably end up saying Z hyperlinks, I don't know. Hello, thank you Martin for having me here, it's a pleasure. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Anna. I'm a mainframe technical specialist, and I joined IBM Russia five years ago. Two years ago, I moved to IBM UK, and for the last year, I had enormous pleasure to be part of the performance team. Thank you for that. So why are we talking about Z-Hyperlink today? We are talking about Hyperlink because of the recent statement of direction that was released in the beginning of this year. It is introducing new mainframe and storage I.O. technology. And we're here to discuss it because this will change traditional mainframe I.O. paradigm and fundamentally improve the performance of database-centric applications. In a nutshell, that hyperlink is a new short-distance optical link 
that connects mainframe and storage. It's a new audio technology since Z-high-performance PyCon and is supposed to dramatically reduce the latency, hence improving transactional response time. It is still early days of the development, however, we really believe that Z-hyperlink will have a great impact on overall system performance. And that's why we're approaching our customers now, so they are aware of it and they can plan the infrastructure accordingly. And also, of course, we very welcome customers' feedback. Considering it is a statement of direction only, today we will not go into deep technical details. I'm sorry about that. Oh, we'll get around to that someday, I'm quite sure. Although I hope that we will be able to clarify main aspects of the statement of direction. And once the technology is there, I hope that we will reconvene uh, to go into nitty-gritty stuff. So it sounds like we've booked you for another episode later on. Hope so. So is actually latency important? It is. If you think about all these uh, new applications, for example, mobile applications, risk and fraud checking systems, all of them, they require almost instantaneous data fetching. And for the past decade, latency reduction has been in a big focus. Uh, different technologies like that high-performance PyCon, HyperPub, the YouTube larger buffer pools, etc., they were developed to foresee the growing SLA requirements. So the primary objective here is obviously to reduce I.O. latency and DB2 I.O.s in particular. Actually, I, I should say that slightly differently. DB2 synchronous I.O.s in particular. So let's think about what a DB2 synchronous I.O. is anyway. Well, there are two kinds of synchronous I.O. that we typically see. One is the synchronous database read I.O. and the other one is the synchronous log-write-io, and if I'm correct in reading the statement of direction, log-write-io is specifically mentioned there, so it's not just read-ios in, in this particular case. So, how do you think how Z-hyperlink will actually change things? I read it as a fundamental change in the way we architect I.O. So, today's I.O. is to a number of places to things like coupling facility, although we don't call that I.O., and FICOM to actual storage devices like disk and tape. And those, well, particularly the disk and tape I.O. setups are really relatively complex. And so we actually have a number of disk response time components that we think of. So we see measurements that actually reflect that complexity. So for disk, we see connect time, disconnect time, pen time, and iOS queue time, though rather less iOS queue time these days with the advent of PAV and HyperPAV. Okay, uh, so if you don't mind, Martin, I will go into the technical details about Hyperlink. I'd love it if you would. Hyperlink is a short distance mainframe attached link. It is connected directly point to point to the storage system. It is a completely new technology complementing the existing mainframe I.O. infrastructure like you mentioned, high-performance PyCon, Helplink links. But it's important not to uh, think that, for example, Hyperlink is an enhancement of Helplink link because it is not, it is a separate technology. Though the throughput is expected to be around 8 gigabytes per second and uh, customers who are running uh, a mainframe and DB2 in data sharing, they are quite familiar with the such high speed. New efficient protocols combined with mainframe middleware enhancements, and by middleware I mean ZOS and DB2, make hyperlinks so fast that the running task is not being dispatched while waiting for the I.O. 
that means that the CPU can just wait for the data. This is a very big change and it completely takes away CPU queuing delays and CPU cache disruption. And all these enhancements, they bring impressive results. The estimations are that hyperlink is 10 times faster than high-performance PyCon, delivering response time around 20-30 microseconds. I think everybody will be asking, so what applications will be benefiting from this? At this moment, we are really focused on DB2 for ZOS, and it is planned to be main hyperlinks exploiter. These improvements require certain planning. Mainframe and storage must be within uh, 150 meters of distance, and I will uh, talk a little bit later about other requirements. So one thing I want to pick up on here is the performance improvement, and I think we should see that in the connect and pen time components response time. Right, so hyperlink is supposed to reduce synchronous I.O. time. And actually, if we break any DB2 transaction time into components, even with large DB2 buffer pools, we will still see that wait time would be the dominant component. And the technology that we are discussing today would reduce the time spent waiting, so the same transaction doing the same work can complete in sharply lower time. So hyperlink is aimed to reduce synchronous I.O. time, improving active log throughput and transactional latency. Would you agree to this? I would think so, and I think the best way for a customer to evaluate this would be to look at the appropriate elements of response time in DB2 accounting trace. Right, and actually understanding that hyperlink performance benefit is one of the key focus areas of our C-Champion workgroup. And we are expecting the benefit estimated tool to be out at some point of time that will allow customers to analyze the environment themselves and see what value that hyperlink will bring to them. However, our group uh, is exploring existing and new SMF records to see what information can be gathered uh, from there. Uh, we will talk about this at an appropriate time. Now, I think I should probably mention for our audience that Z Champions is a group of IBMers from around the world, both from the hardware and software strands of mainframe thinking, who get together every so often to work on projects, and we have an enormous amount of experience between us and, and skills. So it's a good group of people thinking this through. Plus, Z Champions sounds really cool. It does sound really cool, even if I call it Z Champions sometimes. So let's discuss what's needed from the customers to embrace that hyperlink. Firstly, they should be placing mainframe and storage systems within 150 meters from each other. And of course, let's not forget the storage subsystem. All IBM DS8880 storage systems would be either supporting hyperlinks or would be field upgradable. So it's a great investment savings for all our IBM storage customers. Storage systems would be able to support up to 16 Z hyperlink links. And we know that many of our customers, they run continuous availability offerings, for example, HyperSwap, so that hyperlinks would be fully compatible with HyperSwap technology. And of course, there will be a number of requirements from ZOS and DB2 side, but unfortunately, we'll have to discuss this at a later time. So just to pick up on one point you made here, so when you talk about 150 meters, it's really the link distance, isn't it? Correct. Right. So that's very similar to ICA SR link distance limits. That's correct. So there are a couple of terms that 
that listeners might be confused by, and I certainly would admit to some level of confusion on this. And one of them is Z hyperlink, which we're talking about today, and the other one is Z hyperwrite. Right, so let's get things straight. Z hyperwrite is an offering which combines software and hardware, and by hardware I mean mainframe and IBM storage. And Z hyperwrite allows customers who are running continuous availability applications and use hyperswap. It allows them to improve the active log write, whereas Hyperlinks is a new I.O. technology having new protocols and it's a, actually it's a new physical link. So I think that clears that up pretty neatly, so thank you for that. And thank you in general for this, Anna. I uh, very much enjoyed listening to you talk about Z Hyperlink and I expect we'll hear a lot more from you in future if you'll work with us. Thank you. And of Z Hyperlink, it's going to be legend. Wait for it. Okay, Martin, let's get to our topics topic. And this one is called Some Assembly Required, Machine Building with YouTube. It's actually a non-mainframe topic this time, but it may be more like a mainframe topic than we'd like to let on at this stage. You decide. Yeah, you're right. You know, those little ones, they're growing up and they want to imitate a mainframe. In more ways than one. But what do you mean this time? All right, so this is the deal. My 14-year-old son just built his first personal computer this weekend. Now, first of all, he's a hardware kid, and he really doesn't have a lot of interest in software at all. I try to get him to be interested, but no, he's really stuck on hardware. But you know what? He wants what his mainframe people want. He wants speed and availability and, of course, within a budget. Now, while our mainframe workload might be kicks and DB2, his workload is games and intense graphics. So the need for speed starts young. Uh, you're right, but I'm hoping it's just on the keyboard and not behind the wheel of a car. <laughs> so, as we might have learned from red books and manuals or other things about, you know, computer and mainframe concepts, he's learned from the modern way. He gets it all from YouTube. Oh, the youth of today. Yeah. <laughs> So he's watched YouTube videos for, for well more than two years. He has saved all of his birthday and Christmas money for more than two years. And he really didn't ask to talk to anybody in person. And yet he was dedicated to building a computer by only looking at YouTube videos all by himself. Gosh, he sounds unusually focused. I can't relate to that at all. No, I, I don't think you could relate to that. <laughs> Certainly not me. Uh, so you know what? The day came. Uh, the NVIDIA GeForce GTX 1080 Ti graphics card was announced on March 9th, 2017. You know what? That just announced made us the trigger, right? We had, to, we had to get it. So this GPU, or graphics processing unit, was the whole thing for him. And with a name like that, it sounds like one hell of a mouthful, doesn't it? But as a piece of tourist information, would you like to guess how many cores there are in this thing? Um, two or maybe four? Keep going. Oh, gosh. Eight? Sixteen? <laughs> bit higher than that. Oh, I don't know. Just tell me. <laughs> okay. Actually, it's almost 4,000. So there are, count them all, 3,584 shader processors, 224 texture mapping units, and 88 render output units. You know what? That makes sense because during the launch when I watched it, there were some demos. And let me tell you, the way they had flames and water and shading going, this thing was absolutely incredible. So my answer was absolutely ridiculous. But this raised the important point, though, Martin, that these are not your average cores. 
No, I've done a little bit of research into this. In graphics processing units or GPUs are highly specialized processors, hence the three different types that, that I listed just now. Yeah, and that's how they get their speed and make them attractive to gamers like my son. Yes, by having lots of very simple cores all working together. So, you know, like a good mainframe customer, I made him show me the budget and the compromises, right? Because he was not going to get everything he wanted. That GPU that was just announced was non-negotiable. But sadly, he could only buy one of them because they are pretty expensive. So we had to discuss whether his computer was going to be air-cooled versus liquid cooling. And how mainframe is that? I mean, discussing whether you're going to have air cooling or liquid cooling. Well, you know, what goes around comes around. Yeah, you know, he really wanted liquid cooling, but the budget just wasn't there. So he had to go with eight high-quality fans. So he's got two on the CPU that are a little bit larger and six on the chassis that are a little bit smaller. So you shared a photograph of it, and I saw at least four of them in the photo. I saw one big one, and I saw three little ones. So I guess... The big one was the one that, that goes on the processor and that uh, there'll be a matching one on the other side and the same would be true of the sets of three smaller ones. So, yeah, I think I've just seen one side of this machine. Yeah, I couldn't do a 360 picture, but you're right. There was a larger one on the front of the CPU cooler. There's a larger one on the back of the CPU cooler, which you can't see. There's three on the bottom and three on the top. And some very great things, I would think. Oh, gosh, you know, but, but with eight fans, I, I just, I mean, I knew it was coming. I thought, oh my gosh, this thing has to be quiet, you know, and it's got to keep the, the machine cool. So at this point in time, you know, the credit card came out. Fans and quiet. Oh dear. I'm sure he, sh he should be calling them air movement devices anyway, like the, like the 4381. Oh gosh. Okay, so boxes starting arriving, and I was getting nervous, you know, because he spent his own money that he'd been saving up for a very, very long time. He'd only been watching YouTube videos. He'd never put this computer together. He'd never really talked to anybody either, just watching. So Sunday, we had enough parts to sit down and actually, and I watched him install it. Now, he didn't let me do very much, right? He let me do things in very small ways. And personally, I just gave him advice on how to make this thing look aesthetically pleasing because I can always give an opinion about that. So the GPU, of course, still hasn't arrived. I think everybody on the planet is waiting for delivery of that, that GPU. It's on back order. But he really did have enough to build and smoke test it. And that baby, it booted up like a charm. Took his smoke tests. Ah, oh, that moment when you power it on and it doesn't cause the local power station to melt down. That's a good moment. Yeah, and we didn't have any of our fire alarms go off either, which was great. So, you know, maybe we'll have a follow-up on this podcast when that GPU finally arrives. But, you know, for now, take heed. These kids are learning how to do impressive, important things, and they're not learning it at school. And they're not even learning it from people. They're learning it from watching YouTube videos on their mobile phones all by themselves. Now, I got my son a Raspberry Pi, but he said that was too software for him, and he just set it aside. He didn't want it. But these kids are building computers, and they're familiar with things like offloads from the CPU, if that's what you want to call the GPU. They know how to liquid cool for speed, and they understand trade-offs. So these mainframe concepts are deep in their brains, but they probably don't even know that they are mainframe concepts. And they're learning how to do expensive things, too. I wonder where they got that from. <laughs> 
And now it's time for our customer requirements spot. IBM customer requirements we discussed have been omitted or indicated that they are even going to be in plan. They may not be even a good idea to do. There are simply two people talking about customer requirements, publicly available for viewing, and ones that catch your eyes. By no means should every requirement talk about what comes to that the IBM Corporation is even thinking of doing. Our opinions are our own, your mileage may vary, void, or prohibited, and I just displayed or a certain suggestion, our nutritious surface, and past results are not indicative of future performance. Okay, so I have two customer requirements today that I want to banter around about with you. The first one is called ZUSMF Text Box with Editor Capabilities. This is kind of an interesting one, and you and I were discussing this before, and we had some kind of interesting questions about what this might actually do. But the idea is that you have a plain text box available when you're going to edit a template for a workflow, a template being a script or a JCL or you know something that's going to go into the workflow. So inside of this editing text box, you really don't have any editor capabilities. So, and it's not just in the workflow editor, right? Because also in the workflow, you can also do some editing of, of JCL before you submit it, for instance, things like that. So this is an interesting requirement, but you and I talked a little bit about it. What, what, what did you think about this one, Martin? Well, the first thing is I thought it wasn't ambitious enough. Well, the title was because it talked about JCL editing, but when you read the meat of it, it only really talks about sensitivity to 80 character cards and then, by the way I'm not even sure 80 character cards is the right right number um, so I kind of felt that to be really useful a much more full-blown JCL editor would be good but even the 80 character or whatever it should be limited is useful or would be useful because that stops some class of mistakes so I thought it wasn't actually ambitious enough the other thing was I went and looked at, funnily enough, the Dojo Toolkit, on which I believe this is all based, their text area control. Now, the bad news on this is it's actually not possible to extend it with plugins so far as I know. But we could build, someone could build, I think I'd love to, but I'm not going to build one that gets popped up and is much more sophisticated in, in helping you edit JCL. So I kind of felt... Nice try, would be really nice to do, still better than what it asked for. Yeah, I think so too. And, um, you know, I'm just getting into like my favorite editor, which one should you use kind of thing as well, because it's not just JCL. You can use scripts or execs or other things for this. So, so this might be a sticky requirement. I'm not really sure what's, what's going to go on with it. Right, and the problem here is, well, lots of scripting languages and so on have, syntax support in various PC based or you know Mac based or whatever editors I'm not sure JCL does I would love an editor that was good at that that was good at everything else so I suspect the answer here as it is now is you're, you're bound to have to cut and paste your JCL into an ISPF edit to to really do any serious JCL editing but so it it would be yeah. nice nice to see some progress in this area I think yeah, you know what the expression is that, you know, people's editors are like their religion, right? They they only want to have the one that they have for themselves, right? So I don't know. This this might be an interesting kind of requirement to see what happens with it. Yeah, and actually, to be honest, I think it's an awful lot of code to get this done right. So, hmm. Well, we'll see what happens to that one. The other requirement I have is one that I'm strongly in favor of and also one that I think should be a little bit easier to do as well. And that's that in ZOSMF uh, that we have an operator command for displaying the options like a D slash IZU parm or D slash 
or D space, uh, ICU SVR or something like that, but a display command that tells you what options are in effect. So what do you think about that one? Well, I think there are lots of places where knowing the net of it is going to be a good thing and where the net of it actually came from. So yeah, this sounds like another example of that. So it's good. Yeah, and this one seems much more straightforward because what you have to do today without this display command is I go into the job log in SDSF and I look at the ICU server one and I have to go collecting things through there. Uh, there's a line that says arguments and effect, and I have to go look at that. I have to go look through everything else. Eh, it's just not nearly as handy, right? Right, right. But I, I think this is a reasonable one, actually. Yeah, me too. Okay, so where are you expecting to be going in the near future? Near future, besides on, on spring break, which is good, but I won't talk about that. <laughs> I'm going to Orlando May 22nd week for the IBM Tech University. So that should be an exciting event and very large. Lots of Z stuff there. Sounds like a good place to go for that. So I think all I can say is I'm probably going round and round on my lawn because it's mowing season. Uh, and by the way, true fact here, I tend to listen to our podcast through headphones while mowing, which is perhaps not the best way of doing it from a sound quality point of view. But at least I know how I grunt stuff out. Boy, too much snow here to mow. So enjoy your mowing. So, as always, we do welcome your feedback, and you can definitely give us feedback whenever you want to. The next section of the podcast is our on-the-blog section. So, Martin, always busy on blogs. What do you have since our last episode? So, I appear to have been productive because I've got three blog posts out since we last recorded, which seems like an alarmingly fast rate of pumping them out. So, uh, one of them is called What Are Goals Made Of? And it's basically all about how installations decide what values to set for things like response time goals and percents and velocities and stuff like that. And how that might or might not in some way relate to conversations they have with the businesses they're supporting. So that's quite a nice one because I suspect people have to do a lot more thinking than they do about this. The second one is called structural analysis, which is a bit of a bad pun because it's all about how would you deal with performance managing large numbers of coupling facility structures if you happen to have them, thinking a few hundred structures maybe. And the third one is a really bad pun and I've not tried to pronounce it before, so I'm going to say it straight, which is machinations or machinations if you prefer which is my early life experience with actually having a work Mac and moving over from Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So three quite diverse blog posts there. What have you got? I've got a half a blog. I've got a half a blog written. I'm not going to probably have it available to the next episode, but I'm working on it. It's kind of a longer one that requires me to do some testing. So I'm tempted to repeat the rather obscure joke you told me uh, that Anna and I did at the end of our uh, performance topic. And what was that joke, Martin? It was from How I Met Your Mother, as Anna no doubt would keep reminding us. Okay. The obscure joke that I will constantly have to be reminded of, too, and reminded to laugh, too. <laughs> All right. So how do you contact us? You contact uh, me, Marna, on Twitter at mwally or with email at mwally at us.ibm.com. And I am Martin Packer on Twitter and Martin underscore Packer at uk.ibm.com for email. So it goes. <laughs> <laughs>